0: Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 135 unread books on my shelf. With me, as not always, is my brother, Andrew.
1: I'm always here. And my husband, Dylan. I am always
2: here. Always. Always.
1: Let the record show that I'm the only one who has been on every single episode.
0: I was going to say I have, and then I was like, oh, no, wait, I had a baby. No, no
1: you did that whole sabbatical, remember? <laughs>
0: oh yeah
1: it's only me if i'm never on if i'm not on an episode pedros you'll know that something terrible has happened to me because come heck or high water no eventually i might need to take a sabbatical who knows you know with life but um so (laughs) far holding on
0: you know some people say this is my podcast but it's really your podcast
1: apparently i take control of the podcast now
0: Ooh. um Andrew, how are you? You were just here in person um, and we miss you dearly.
1: I'm good. I miss Maggie and I, and you too, I guess. And frankly, <laughs> the LA weather.
0: <laughs> yeah. Andrew came for Thanksgiving, which was very fun for him to be here. Um, although he does this thing, which Pageos I think would understand um, why it infuriates me so much. You know, my bookshelves are perfectly organized. I like them a certain way, everything in its right place. And Andrew comes in and just knocks one book over or turns it around or makes it go perpendicular. And it drives me crazy. So after he left, I was feeling all sad and missing him. And then I went to the study and half of the books were turned around.
1: And I was like, (laughs) okay, 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 okay. Half of the books were not turned around. You have too many books for me to have done that.
0: Like a good, like... (laughs)
1: What? 10%. 10% of the to-read list was turned around, maybe. But that is, hey, Pedro, guess what? The to-read list is only a fraction of what Bailey has in that room.
0: That's good, though. That shows that I have read books, too, not just, you know, aspire to read books. Mm, hard to say. Andrew, why do you do this? Why? 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 Why do you choose to be this way?
1: I do it because of how you react to it. And I know that doesn't say a lot about my character as a man, <laughs> but- You never seem angry about it. You seem delighted and angry about it. And that's why I continue to do it.
0: That's fair. Yeah, it's hard. You know, it's hard to keep your reaction in check, even though you know that it's your reaction that's fueling it. If Uh, you just
1: silently turned them around and never mentioned it, the the thrill would go for me very quickly.
0: Good to know. Andrew, do you have any shame? You were with us, so I don't think so unless you snuck off and, and got some shame without us.
1: No, uh, Pedro's, despite literally going to Chevalier's multiple times, once with Bailey, Mm -hmm. I did not buy a single book for myself, Mm -hmm. though I did buy a future Christmas gift for one Maggie Ruth.
0: Mm -hmm. We took Andrew to our local favorite bookstore, and it's hard to go in there and not buy books in general, but also because... Maggie likes to take books from the shelf and walk around going, la, 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 and then eating them. So you feel like you have to buy something.
1: Yes, though she didn't eat this book. This book is just a, it's a, a children's book that I'm going to give her around Christmas, which is sort of Christmassy themed.
2: Make sure you listen to the to eat list to see what Maggie t- thinks of it. It's
0: mostly, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. She just keeps getting different editions of that book and chewing in. It's like, Maggie, we already have two at home. Is she boring?
2: <laughs> although we did get some Toby shame.
0: Oh yes. Well first of all, you know, shout out to Toby. We miss you. We'll see you in two weeks, but like, you know, the void of you is here. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> You're we miss you, Toby. Um and oh also, Toby was in Maine without us. He, he <laughs> which is nuts. Um he chose to go to Maine and he also like Woodstock, New York, but we weren't there. Anyway, so Dylan, tell us about the book you got for Toby.
2: Well, we were walking by the Super deluxe uh, free library. Andrew, you've seen it.
1: You agree? I can attest that there is a good free library and a cruddy free library. The good one is like the fanciest bookstore in the world, comparatively.
0: Well, I mean, if you like John Grisham and um, James Patterson, you'll love the other one.
1: And some Clive Cussler, too. It's David
2: Baldacci. <laughs> and there was a book that was calling to me Billy, what does the cover of this book look like of Cold Hard Canyon?
0: Um, it looks like a very fancy Hollywood man with a white bow tie and a very prominent hoop earring, seducing the camera with a cigar in his hand.
2: And a mustache. Can't forget that.
0: Yes. And like a needle thin mustache.
2: It's called Cold Heart Canyon by Toby's favorite author, Clive Barker. Mm, The Jaff. I don't think he hates Clive Barker, but I think he knows the damage that Clive Barker can do with an infinite amount of pages. And in this case, 652 pages of a Hollywood ghost story. So I was showing pictures of this to Toby, and then he was saying, like, oh, my God, I, Like, please do not make me read that. So, of course, I had to take it home with me. Are you going to give it to him for Christmas? I'm going to give it to somebody for something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, is it fair... I mean, Toby doesn't listen to this when he's not on, so no worries. Uh, Is it fair to give him a book and then call it shame? Especially when he has specifically requested that you do not (laughs) give it to him. I mean, who's he going to believe, himself or the choosener?
0: (laughs) It's like the shame nun, but instead of somebody with a a bell, it's just people throwing books at you and yelling shame.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That would be probably just as dangerous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Toby, if you're listening, you're getting a present soon. A shameful one. Oh, I did not have any shame, but I finally finished Six of Crows. Loved it. Five stars. Excited for Crooked Kingdom. And I'm also reading a book that you guys might enjoy called The Swallows by Lisa Lutz.
1: In the swa
2: Are la 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 i going to get another book called The Doves to finish out the bird trilogy.
0: Ha, ha, ha. Wait, what was the first one?
2: Crows,
1: Swallows.
0: Crows. Oh,
1: But sorry, we interrupted you with two amazing jokes.
0: (laughs) I was just going to say that I'm trying to put together um, one of my favorite podcasts, Reading Glasses, which Pedro's would definitely enjoy. They talk about your reading wheelhouse, which is like what kinds of tropes or subjects or characters make you immediately like buy the book and read the book. And I'm realizing that one of my wheelhouses is like a private school with a secret. And that's The Swallows. And I love it.
2: I was going to say, that's a surprisingly rich genre.
0: There is a lot, especially like private schools in New England, which is what this one is. And I love them. Love them. Sometimes it's a ghost. In this case, it seems like some kind of twisted, like girls versus boys, ingrained patriarchy thing.
2: So it shouldn't get you a book about a public high school in Santa Monica where everything's cool?
0: Mm, yeah. I don't know <laughs> if I
2: would.
0: It has to have a secret. It can't just be a school. It's got to have a secret. Andrew, have you, I mean, I know I'm just throwing this at you. Do you have any idea of like at least one wheelhouse that you have?
1: Hmm. Uh, I don't know if I have like that many established wheelhouses, but I will say that, and this isn't like subject matter, but if you have short chapters, you're amazing to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Something about how like my reading rhythm, I just read a book that I liked less than another book that I'm having trouble finishing. And the the only thing I can really point to is that the chapters in the book that it's taking me a while to finish are much longer. And it's just hard to sit down and have like a quick reading session with it. Um, tell you what, a pit in this, and I will try to think of by our next recording what what my wheelhouse is, and maybe we can ask Toby too. Sounds good because his is just fantasy and shard blades, but that's Are fine. you saying <laughs> that your favorite genre is short books?
0: No, it's short chapters, it's very no it's short
1: chapters. I mean, like a little life has short chapters, and part of that's part of what makes that really compelling to read.
0: The Swallow is the one I'm reading now, short chapters,
1: love it. It's something really satisfying about being able to knock out five chapters, even if that's only like 15 pages. I feel like. That leads me to reading like 100 pages in a sitting versus two 50-page chapters. That becomes overwhelming to me. You
0: definitely read more because you're like, I can do one more little one. And they're like, "Ah, another Mm -hmm. one, another one. And all of a sudden, 100 pages.
1: And baby, they add up.
0: Well, speaking of short chapters, Andrew, um, I heard that you read a book this week that might have
1: short chapters. I did. Uh, In fact, some of the chapters are a sentence long. (gasps) Wow. What book did you read? I read To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Heard of her?
2: the lighthouse, to the walls.
0: I was going to say, how many times do you think Dylan will do to the lighthouse, to the wall in this episode?
1: <laughs> what I want to say is amazing about that joke is Dylan has done it a lot of times, and yet I'm always not expecting it. <laughs> and it still always throws me off slightly when he does it. Um, so I'm guessing about 10 more times. Pages, if you're too young, that references uh, Get Low, a song by Lil Jon and the East Side Boys oh yes so i read to the lighthouse by virginia Woolf, which has very little to do with uh, the song get low <laughs> um, <laughs> i'll try to do this as best i can an overarching sort of theme of this review is i don't think i am smart enough for this book but maybe it's all trick and i'm just brilliant but i don't think i am um so here's my attempt at it's not a log line um or even really a summary but here's what i wrote this book ain't like other books i've read <laughs> Virginia Woolf's novel is far less concerned with major events or plot and far more focused on how people perceive the world they find themselves living in. The book is sort of a dissection of perception, laying bare the winding turns of the mind from multiple different characters, showing the reader the interior processes and mechanisms of how people affect other people with things so small as size or glances. A family stays at an estate in Scotland. They have their children and some friends with them. The littlest boy, James, hopes to go visit the lighthouse tomorrow, if the weather is fine. That's the plot
0: do they visit the lighthouse or is that a spoiler
1: i cannot tell you that what an illuminating log line although it's actually not that illuminating it's very mysterious it's probably not that not super illuminating but i think that's okay because i don't think there is a way to sort of concisely explain this book because if i go into the plot which is pretty simple there's a family living at this vacation home that they own or rent it's apparently based on a home that virginia wolf used to rent the family the ramsays live there with their eight children uh for the summer uh and they have a rotating guest of sort of scholars and like people that mrs ramsey has taken in under her wing who come and spend time and the little boy james wants to go to the lighthouse tomorrow and it's but his dad says the weather's not going to be fine but his mom says maybe it will be but the dad says no the weather's not going to be fine this is sounds starting to sound a little tongue-in-cheek and i don't mean it to be that way because it's actually really interesting because the book itself is divided into three parts there's this opening section which is all the course of the day from james saying that he wants to go to the lighthouse or his mother saying that they could go to the lighthouse to the end of the day when everyone goes to sleep that's one section it's probably just under 50 percent of the book um and then there's another section called time passes which literally launches the book for 10 years (laughs) um with a lot of tiny chapters the whole book is told from a non-mission narrator but this is more maybe more told from an even further removed narrator that is just describing the events of the world through the realm of of this house and then there's another section where mm, some of the characters come back Mm. 10 years later
0: i've never read virginia wolf to my great shame
1: yeah i think it's too scary yeah yeah he's afraid of virginia (laughs) wolf
0: I was just going to say that I did read in high school the book, The Hours, that, of the famed Nicole Kidman movie. From what you're saying, it reminds me of that because it just seems like just like simple moments and how those reverberate into the future, which also connects to my book I read. So Interesting. Um, yeah,
1: and, and maybe it'll help to explain it this way. Um, focusing a little bit on that narrator, that narrator is is an omniscient narrator that can go into anybody's headspace. So it's not just somebody telling you like the things that you can see. Like it's not that distant third person narrator that's like Tom walked down the street and Tom stabbed a man. Um, <laughs> it's it has the ability to go into other people's perspectives, and it does it like sometimes mid sentence. It does it mid paragraph all the time, and you're really unsure who you're like living in. But the cool part about it is it doesn't. Just just go and say like, Tom saw a man going down the street and thought that man looked evil, so I decided to stab him. Oh no, I'm being stabbed! It's not like that sort of switch. It's more like the person is like greatly analyzing what somebody has said because they think that maybe they don't like them or like people have decided they hate each other based on one thing. And like a couple paragraphs later, they're like, Oh, actually, I really like that guy. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's so windy and so cool. Like for lack of a better word, it's it's really coolly done. It makes it very hard to follow. It's not a style of narration that I've ever really experienced. It's sort of stream of consciousness, but it's like emotional stream of consciousness. I'm sure people far smarter than me have put actual terms to this. I didn't look them up, whatever.
0: (laughs) I, I was just gonna say that, you know, when you're saying you don't think you're smart enough, that's the first thing that comes to my head is like, oh man, I don't know if I'm gonna understand this one, but you know, we have a book podcast and we're not stupid. So, like, maybe it's just a difficult book, and that's okay, and that doesn't mean that we're not smart enough for it.
1: I kind of want to put that on a t-shirt for yeah, us. Yeah, no, I agree. Bailey is not stupid, Dylan is not stupid, and Toby is not stupid. I'm the dumbest person in the world. Let's just get the No, I know there. you're
0: overanalyzing that deep sigh I made earlier, but no, Andrew, you're smart.
1: But yeah, without a doubt, it's a difficult book, and I don't think the beauty in reading this book isn't in being able to describe exactly what happened, and it isn't in... Like, it's about sort of enjoying the process of reading it. And that's fun. Ultimately, I felt pretty rewarded reading it. To go a little bit into the elves more specifically, I've sort of touched on some of them now, so I I won't go through all of them. But, like, the power of the writing is is undeniable. Virginia Woolf has stood the test of time for a reason, only because she creates, like, amazing sentences. Uh, But she's so careful in her observations of human emotions um, of how we react to other people of how one person can sort of like get the same stimulus 10,000 times but it, depending on who's doing it to them react one of like 10,000 different ways. What's really cool about that is it's sort of thrilling to read something from a non-contemporary time uh, that feels so relatable in terms of something like overthinking how people like you or like dissecting your human interactions because that's very relatable I feel like to most people and I also feel like it's one of the things that like history sort of flattens in daguerreotypes or in photo- Photographs, Like, you assume that the people that you see in those old-timey photographs didn't quite have the complexity of inner life. Worries about if people like me. Um, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: <laughs> well said. It reminds me of um, watching that Peter Jackson movie about World War One. What's it called, Dylan?
1: Uh, they 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 they're not old. Grow old.
0: Yeah. It, it's basically Peter Jackson finally sped up this old jerky black and white footage. And all of a sudden, the people are like real people and moving in a real way. And you're like, whoa, I didn't realize they were actually human in black and white times.
1: (laughs) It's a similar um, experience, I think. So that's a major L for me. Um, I'll bring in a couple quotes now that I thought were good, good writing. Get them, Virginia. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to read two quotes. They're kind of long. Uh, One is about life and one is about love. First one is on page 59. This is um, Mrs. Ramsey, who I think probably gets the most page time of the first section, thinking about having children and what that means bringing other people into the world. She took a look at life, for she had a clear sense of it there. Something real, something private, which she shared with neither her children nor with her husband. A sort of transaction went on between them in which she was on one side and life was on another and she was always trying to get the better of it, as it was of her. And sometimes they parlayed when she sat alone. There were, she remembered, great reconciliation scenes. But for the most part, oddly enough, she must admit that she felt this thing that she called life terrible, hostile, and quick to pounce on you if you gave it a chance. There were eternal problems, suffering, death, the poor. There was always the woman dying of cancer, even here. And yet she had said to all these children, you shall go through it all. To eight people, she had said relentlessly that. For that reason, knowing what was before them, love and ambition and being wretched alone in dreary places, she often had the feeling, why must they grow up and lose it all? And then she said to herself, brandishing her sword at life, nonsense. They will be perfectly happy. Mm. I had to do some self-editing as I went through because there's a bunch of parentheticals that come in that are very cool when reading the book, but will not make sense as a quote. (laughs) Anywho, so that's a rumination on life. And here's a rumination on love this is on page 102 of my copy. This is um, from the perspective of a character named Lily who's unmarried and visiting the house. Such was the complexities of things. For what happened to her, especially staying with the Ramseys, was to be made to feel violently two opposite things at the same time. That's what you feel was one. That's what I feel was the other. And they fought together in her mind as now. It is so beautiful, so exciting, this love, that I tremble on the verge of it and offer, quite out of my own habit, to look for a brooch on the beach. Also, it is the stupidest, most barbaric of human passions, and it turns a nice man with a profile like a gem's, Paul's was exquisite, into a bully with a crowbar. He was swaggering, he was insolent, in the mile-end road. Yet, she said to herself, from the dawn of time, odes have been sung to love, and if you ask nine people out of ten, they would say they wanted nothing but this love, while the women, judging from her own experience, would all the time be feeling, this is not what I want. There is nothing more tedious, pure, and inhumane than this, yet it is also beautiful and necessary. Well, then. Well, then. Well, then. Well, then. Those were maybe three sentences combined <laughs> those two quotes there's a lot of uh, uh, fancy punctuation mm-hmm. um it, especially when like reading it aloud I, I sort of felt like i kind of got it more that way but it's hard and let's pivot into the orcs a little bit here, because the last elf I have is that it, it that I'll say and then I'll, we'll pivot into the orcs, which is just it stays with you. I was worried because I actually I also read Midnight Library, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I was worried that reading another book after finishing To the Lighthouse, I would sort of forget it. But it stays with you. It is the book I'm thinking about more, having read both these books recently.
0: Hmm. OK.
1: Moving on to our orcs. Um I said the narration style is unlike any I've ever read before, which is super cool. But for all of the uniqueness of that narrator and for all how how thrilling that was at, at points, it takes a lot of energy to read this. It is so, so, so hard to read. I felt stupid reading it. It took a ton of work. And the work is ultimately rewarding. I want to be clear on that. And I'm glad that I read it. But I can't like sit here and in good conscience say, that's a fun, hot beach read that to the lighthouse, everybody go pick up a copy and sit on down. Um, maybe it would be fun to read on a trip to a lighthouse.
0: It sounds like it would be good to read in a class, like to dissect it with a group of people and a teacher.
1: Um mm, maybe that does sound like my nightmare. It sounds like it'd be fun for you to read in a class.
0: I just think it would be fun if we all just did a book club about it.
1: Oh my god,
2: I need to remind the teacher that she assigned homework yesterday, then she forgot um, to mention it.
0: You did you didn't tell us what the homework is? Um, yeah it does it does seem really difficult Andrew honestly like I picked up the book while you were here and read a sentence and I was like whoo that's hard so I'm impressed I'm impressed that you read it
1: Like I don't want to be like asking for applause for having read this book because ultimately I'm really glad I read it I feel like I got the rhythm of it and that's I think really important is to sort of get in the right headspace to read it I when I first couple times I tried to start it, it was after like a really long day uh, and it just wasn't right like I needed to dedicate time to sit and, and focus so what and you're saying once is, you got you did it yay. All right, I said the opposite book, whatever. <laughs> and yeah, the only other uh, orc I, I have is you leave reading this book feeling like you need to read it again, which isn't wholly an orc because, like, it's exciting. But it's also a little bit of an orc because it's like, I just read this and I feel like I missed stuff. But that's sort of overall my orcs and elves. Like, I'm really glad I read this book. I'm going to take a break from reading Virginia Woolf unless it gets chosen for me. I know I do have the waves on on my to read list as well. Excited to try again in the future.
0: And I'm proud of you and I won't clap and I won't mention it again, but I'm proud of you. (laughs)
1: Again, this is a podcast for book readers who maybe read this book very casually. It's like, Andrew, come on. Four stars for me. I'm definitely going to keep it on my shelf. I say not intentionally, but sometimes disingenuously that I would read this book again. This one, I actually think I will read again at some point.
0: Awesome. Well, Dylan, I mean, do you have any facts on this unknown author,
2: Virginia Woolf? I hate you guys so much for making me do this one. This is by far and away the hardest author that there's too much stuff written about her, mm-hmm. because on top of the fact that she has three memoirs, she journaled every day of her life for the last twenty years, and she ran with a circle of literary friends that all wrote books about her.
1: So you you better include every detail. Hearing a lot of wham uh, wham wham.
2: So buckle up because this podcast is going to go an hour long. Um, and that's also me saying that this is not an all inclusive story about her life. Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephen. In January 25th, 1882, in South Kensington, London, England, at 22 Hyde Park Gate. 22 Hyde Park Gate is really important because she wrote a book about that later.
0: Okay, I was like, this is very specific. I know
2: vaguely where that is. See? That's why I said it. (laughs) But before we start with her, we have to go with her mother. She is one of the few people I know that literally will show her mother on Wikipedia, and it's a link to her mother's Wikipedia article, which is a whole thing. And then her mother's Wikipedia article, which is a whole thing. Because her mother was uh, born in Calcutta to an Anglo-Indian family. I don't know how much Anglo, how much Indian. But basically, Virginia Woolf's grandmother was Julia Margaret Cameron, the first woman photographer. So she took a lot of photos of her mom, Julia Jackson. Uh, So Julia Jackson was kind of a model, like her, she was very famous. Like people know who she was because she was the subject of these photographs. Mm-hmm. Okay, and she also was a writer. Her mom wrote a book called "Note from Sick Rooms," which was like one of the first books about nursing. And um, she also was a children's book author. But she, after uh, she married second husband, I should have made a flowchart about all this about all the husbands. And- Wait, the
0: mom married Virginia Woolf's second husband.
2: Sorry. The mom married Virginia Woolf's father, her second husband, Leslie Stephen. Okay. She then um, kind of stopped writing and became more of a housewife. And this is a huge thing in Virginia Woolf's life about her relationship with her overbearing dad and her mysterious literature mother. Because her mother died when Virginia was 13. Okay. And... Andrew, does a mother character come back into the lighthouse?
1: I I shouldn't say whether or not. It's hard to best say. leave it up to best leave it up to mystery.
2: Spoiler, a lot of this comes back in a lot of her writings is mysterious mothers. Okay. Um, okay, because her family. Let's do this. It's six children asterisk. Wait, wait, wait.
1: I just buckled in.
2: Okay. It's six children asterisk with two half-brothers and a half-sister from the Duckworths, her mother's first marriage. And she has another half-sister, Laura, from the father's first marriage, and an older sister, Vanessa, and a brother, Toby. You only really have to keep track of Vanessa and Toby. Uh, Adrian is also born. Adrian's kind of a tool that makes fun of her and calls her the goat. That nickname sticks. Rude. 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 Hey, but now it means greatest of all time. (laughs) And her brother, Toby, which I love the fact that it's spelled T-H-O-B-Y. Okay. Uh, that comes in a lot. And to the lighthouse is based a lot on the Stevens living in uh, Cornwall and the God Revy lighthouse, which is where they went to all the time. Some say am saying Virginia Woolf was not that imaginative of a writer. She basically just like wrote what happened to her.
1: Okay. She <laughs> moved it to Scotland and the Isle of Skye.
2: Wow. <laughs> but one of the sisters, Stella, had to step up to become the matriarch in the family when the mom died. And Stella died then when she was in her 30s. So Virginia Woolf has called her childhood basically 1897 to 1904, the seven unhappy years. And when Virginia Woolf calls something the seven unhappy years, they are very unhappy for her. Oh, But yeah, so basically it was a very tumultuous childhood. And on top of that, women were not allowed to go to college. That was a huge thing that all the boys went to very prestigious schools like uh, Cambridge and Trinity. But Virginia was able to go to the ladies department at King's College. Well, King's College is a good college. The ladies department at King's College. Okay. Uh, where she studied advanced Greek, uh, Latin, and German. Um, but also when her brothers went to Cambridge, they came back and taught her the lessons that they learned. That's nice. That's nice. It would be nice to get a degree and be admitted to that.
0: Well, I mean, studying advanced Greek and Latin is pretty impressive.
2: Yeah. I'll give it to her. The other thing they brought back, when Toby was in Trinity in 1899, he became joined in a circle of... Party Boys with like Clive Bell, Linton Starchy, Leonard Wolf. Um, and Saxon Cindy Turner. And basically he would kind of help his sisters get with these like really cool author guys. They were originally called the Midnight Society, but they turned into the Bloomsbury set. Midnight Society I just put in because it sounds cooler.
0: Well, you guys know what the Midnight Society is. We do? Andrew does. What? It's a place where you meet by a campfire and tell ghost stories. That's basically what they, yeah, that's what
2: they're doing. <laughs> but are you afraid of the dark? Oh! <laughs> um, but the Bloomsbury set is a very famous group of writers, and if you mention that to an English major, they will think you're very smart.
0: Is um, what's his name in it? James Joyce?
2: No, he is around though, but he's not in this
1: group. He was more Lost Generation and more. Yeah, mm, he's slightly before him.
2: <laughs> gotcha. So I'm going to try to capture a lot of the relationships going on in here. But there's so much written about them. Basically, one, everyone was hooking up with everybody. Nice. Nice. Um, except for Lynn Strachey, who uh, proposed to Virginia first. And then they realized that they probably would not be a good couple because he was gay.
0: And she was maybe gay.
2: We'll get to that. Hey, who's to say? We will get to that interesting part. But he he basically kind of asked her to be his, basically be his beard, and like they realized that wouldn't be fair to her or him. Yeah. Also, to be fair, Virginia Woolf did not want to get married. She hated the concept of being with a man like that. Interesting. Interesting. Um, but Leonard Woolf though. Uh, who was the most political of the group, which Mm. if you've read that list of people, that's a very political group, met her at the May Ball, and then visited the family in 1904, uh, where he dined with the Stevens at Gordon Square. And he noted that he fell in love with her, even though she sat perfectly silent throughout the meal and looked ill. I love her. (laughs) Tight. So they got married in 1912. (laughs) Yeah, they did. And she became Virginia Woolf. All right. Um... And they are a very interesting couple because it sounds like they're both outsiders. Virginia is a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What? <laughs> that actually comes into this next part. And Leonard is Jewish. They want to start a uh, their own book press company because mm-hmm. they love their, all their author friends that they want to make like get them published. Mm-hmm. They were not allowed into the St. Bride School of Printing because she's a woman and he is Jewish.
0: Very rude. Rude. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But they started their own. They started their own in their own dining room called the Hogarth Press, which is a huge deal uh, that published a lot of the poets in her day. And also at this time, too, on top of hanging out with the Bloomsbury set, her friend Catherine Cox had introduced her to the group of neo-pagans.
1: Ooh. Oh, heck yeah! You thought the Bloomsbury <laughs> Press were
2: weird. The neo-pagans... Basically, they did weird stuff all day, (laughs) including pursuing socialism, vegetarianism, exercising outdoors, and alternative lifestyle, including social nudity, and a whole lot of polydirectional relationships.
0: That just sounds like Instagram.
2: Yeah. Basically, she was living in an influencer house. Who's afraid of TikTok? Um, But she met Catherine Hawks there. She also met Vita Sackville-West, who was an out bisexual woman. Uh, they wrote a lot of love letters, which it literature professors say it's like it's a gray area, but if you read the letters like they're very close cool in love. In fact, there's even um a movie called uh Vita and Virginia about their relationship. And Orlando by Virginia Woolf is apparently based on Vita. That's the other Wolf I've I've read. Orlando.
1: Orlando. Yes.
2: While this all sounds like a lot of fun, uh Virginia Woolf also dealt with a lot of depression in her life. She had multiple suicide attempts including right after she got married in 1917 and then basically every 10 years she'd have a depression episode they moved around a lot to try to get into like new houses and that's kind of what Ed was mentioned to the lighthouse they kind of found like you know old estates and tried to move however during 1940 uh she wrote a book a biography of her friend Roger Fry it came out and it was torn apart it got a really bad reception. Two of their homes were destroyed in the Blitz. That's right, World War Two was happening. Mm. And Leonard uh, decided to enlist in the Home Guard, which was kind of like the National Guard for England at the time. And Virginia Woolf was a ardent pacifist and felt betrayed by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, leading up to the fact that uh, in March 1941, she walked into a lake with a coat full of rocks and killed herself. But she left behind a very sweet um, suicide note to Leonard. Mm. And basically just hoping for it would have a happy life.
0: Yeah. I feel like we have to do a major content warning for this episode because suicide is a big theme in both things. Well,
2: and also with the authors, too. But um, this is just touching the surface. There's a lot you can read from Virginia Woolf directly about her life, but also a lot of people have written books about her. And it's just a really, really interesting life. Cool. Well,
0: thank you for those excellent facts, Dylan.
1: Yes. We'll have you back on when I have the waves in like three months and then make you do it all again. So to the lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, four stars. So Bailey, I know we're recording kind of late today, but uh, I hear something's happening around midnight for you.
0: Yeah. Midnight. I'm going to go to the library, the midnight (gasps) library.
1: The 1 (laughs) a.m.
2: Bibliotech.
0: I read a book this week. I read the midnight library by Matt Haig. Um, This book was big last year uh big 2020 book Um, and i got it for christmas thank you andrew
1: you are welcome
0: and i know it was very hyped um i was excited to read it but also a little skeptical and you know i don't want to spoil my review so um, i'm going to repeat content warning this whole section is going to talk a lot about suicide so if you're sensitive about that i would skip it uh so the book follows nora seed um she is living in england she is living in her hometown she's feeling just extreme depression. And the book starts out with um, warning that in a few hours, Nora is going to decide to die, which is very dark right from the beginning. So essentially, Nora decides to take her own life. And after she overdoses, we cut to this place in between life and death called the Midnight Library, where she is met by Mrs. Elm, who is her childhood librarian and presented with infinite number of books that are all called my life and they follow what her life would have been like if she had made a different decision if she changed one of her regrets um, like for example like she was going to marry a man named Dan but decided to break off the engagement right before the wedding so what would her life have been like if she'd stayed with him or you know she was a very promising swimmer as a young girl like what if she had stuck with that like would she have become an Olympian etc and so each chapter They're very short chapters, and they explore...
2: They're very short chapters. Exactly. they are.
0: And they explore the different avenues of what could have happened. Um, It's very evocative of, like, a sliding doors, or um, if you read Maybe in Another Life by Taylor Jenkins Reid, it's this whole, like, I guess you could call it sci-fi, but this idea of the multiverse. Like, if you had made one different decision, there's a whole other universe where you exist and you have different outcomes. Um, Andrew, I know you read it. Is that... But anything you want to add to the
1: plot? The, oh, the only other thing I would add is one of the other big possibilities is that she started a band with her brother. Oh, yes. That features prominently in some of the potential.
0: Yes. Um, and so ultimately, her goal in the library is to find a life that is one she wants to inhabit. Um, and when she goes there, she'll forget about the library and take on this new life. OK, so that's the plot. Um, I thought obviously this has a very clear concept but it was familiar to me. I feel like I could guess what the ending would be from just reading the back of the book. And in that way, I found it predictable, but also just like a little bit, what's the word? I want to say saccharine, but that's not the right word. Just kind of like- Fluffy. Fluffy. It's very clearly trying to be inspiring and trying to explain like how great life can be and why life is worth living, which is wonderful, but at the same time felt a little bit easy or flat. I want to say, though, people love this book. When we posted it on Instagram, all these people were like, oh my gosh, Midnight Library, five stars. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. So I know that I'm probably in the minority. If this interests you, 100%, you should read this book. Other elves about this book. It is very fast paced. Obviously, we've referenced the short chapters, but I read it in just a matter of hours. Yeah, It's really quick. I liked the concept that there could be a lot of people that are going through this and that they might encounter other people going through this is that a spoiler
1: no i think that that's fair as as sort of a wrinkle in the pattern that 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 shows up and i did i like that as well that was one of my elves
0: yeah It kind of expanded this world. People have described it sci-fi. I mean, I guess it's sci-fi because it talks about uh, string theory, but it feels more like speculative fiction. But regardless, like the idea that there could be multiple people and they could meet each other, that was interesting. Obviously, I really related to the idea of the library and the different books. Um, And she talked about, you know, being a little kid and being sort of a loner and so spending her recess inside with a librarian playing chess. I may or may not have done that. I mean, who's to say?
1: You played chess? You're not very good at chess. Well, okay, so. Slam. <laughs>
0: I understood exactly why her brain would take her to this library, why it was so comforting. And that's a solid elf, I think. Um, and I will give a quote. Um, so this is page 143. This is an entire chapter, so you can just see how short it is. Nora had always had a problem accepting herself. From as far back as she could remember, she'd had the sense that she wasn't enough. Her parents, who both had their own insecurities, had encouraged that idea. She imagined now what it would be like to accept herself completely, every mistake she had ever made, every mark on her body, every dream she hadn't reached or pain she had felt, every lust or longing she had suppressed. She imagined accepting it all, the way she accepted nature, the way she accepted a glacier or a puffin or a breach of a whale. She imagined seeing herself as just another freak of nature, just another sentient animal trying their best. And in doing so, she imagined what it was like to be free. So, like, lovely. Great themes. I wish I could treat myself that way. This concludes my elves. Andrew, do you have any elves before I move on to the orcs?
1: No, uh, no, um, no, I mostly agree with your elves. I I think that those are all pretty much in the elf corner for me. I did really like the description of the setting of the library, and I wish we'd gotten a little more of that. But I I really liked the books are all green, which I thought was a fun detail. I don't know. I, I thought the world building of the of the library was pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, I agree. Alright, so let's move on to orcs. Let's move on to the bad books at the library. Uh, Naughty boys. I've already mentioned that it it felt a little bit predictable because it's similar to other books about this subject, but I also felt that It felt a little bit like a writing exercise to me at points of like, well, what if our character was this or this or this or this? I mean, it just got a little bit repetitive for me. Like, I don't really need to know what it would be like if she was a vineyard owner or if she worked at like an animal shelter. I just kind of felt like an overwhelming sense of, yeah, okay, we get it. I think that this book also suffered from being really overhyped to me, that I had really high expectations. I really wanted to love it and it was just middle of the road for me because it succumbed to the tropes that I thought that it would, um, which is being predictable and being a little bit saccharine. So I I kept going back and forth in my head. I literally changed my review on Goodreads three times between a three and a four star because I thought, you know, this is solid. I want to give it three stars. But then I did read it so quickly that I was like, well, maybe I should give it four. Um, On the story graph, I actually gave it a 3.25, which you can do on the story graph. Um, Oh, 2.5. I know. But I ultimately settled at a three star. Like, I feel okay that I read it. I I wanted something a bit more challenging, I think. What about you, Andrew?
1: I could not agree more with your orcs. (laughs) No, uh, like, yeah, I mean, especially I don't want to be that butthead who's like, who's coming out of reading Virginia Woolf, (laughs) but like coming out of reading something that was so like, delicate and surgical th- about the intricacies of how people behave in situations and I don't mean that I, that sounds really mean but that's not what I, it just like what you said it, it's predictable it follows the emotional beats that I could feel being laid out from the beginning and I, I don't want to cast aspersions on this because I don't know the the author's biography but some of the like lessons learned felt a little simplistic and maybe even a little dismissive of sort of the real like chemical challenges of depression sometimes yes. but, um, the author has struggled with with depression and with with suicidal thoughts and actions obviously he has experience with this so i don't want to be completely rude about it but um yeah some of the like lessons in it felt too easy for me
0: did you give it three stars as well?
1: I, got, I gave it three stars as well. And if you want to hear a spoiler-riddled uh, extra episode of this, get us to a million followers by tomorrow. <laughs>
2: a
0: million followers <laughs> by tomorrow.
2: If you want to find us, make sure you make sure you follow us on Instagram and then comment.
0: There's probably a world where our podcast has a million followers. Just oh. got to pick the right book. So yeah. So Dylan, did you find any facts on Matt Haig? Probably not as many as Virginia Woolf. Not as many. Same
2: amount. <laughs> not as many, but it's always weird when you find out about like these celebrity authors authors that you hadn't heard of before, and then you realize, like, how famous they are. I guess in England, he is very famous. Okay. But he doesn't have, like, five memoirs written about him. And also only one sister, thank God. Okay. Matt Haig was born on July 3rd, 1975 in Sheffield. Hey! Yorkshire, baby! He was the son of a teacher and an architect, but loved reading, Went uh, studied English and uh, history at the University of Hull. Cool. And basically throughout his childhood, he said he dealt with a lot of problems of anxiety, of depression, and he tried to solve a lot of that with drugs and alcohol. In fact, he relied so much on drugs and alcohol that at the age of 24, he was working as a bouncer bartender in Ibiza. Oh. Where he almost attempted suicide by jumping off a cliff, but stopped a foot away from the cliff edge. I said he didn't have six memoirs and everything, but he does have a few. And one of them is called reasons to stay alive okay and it's about him dealing with that suicidal choice it came out in 2015 and it's a huge hit okay because matt haig is basically besides the fact that this guy writes a lot of books he has like 30 books he writes like two a year wow okay and he writes children books nonfiction, and fiction books uh but that book about um him and ibiza is a huge bestseller and talks about like going through like what leads you up to suicide and then like his life afterwards Gotcha. Okay. Because his life afterwards, uh, that Ibiza happened in 1999, and then in 2004, his first book, "The Last Family in England," was published and was optioned by Brad Pitt. Cool. He also spent his earlier years as a journalist, writing for The Guardian, The Sunday Times, and The Independent. He mentions this in a lot of the interviews I looked up. Trent Crim, The Independent. That's literally what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a self-help person per se. But his nonfiction books are about self help kind of things and like kind of working your way out of depression and like kind of trying how to deal with it. So his last book is called The Comfort Book that just came out this year because he figured that people might need some comfort. Sure. But he is also very upfront saying it's like, I know this is very like touchy feely kind of things and people are perfectly allowed to make fun of me for it.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's definitely those themes in Midnight Library.
2: Yeah. But because of his writing, though, he uh, he has like a huge following and especially of any celebrities having to do with mental health. So Stephen Fry is a huge like champion of him, Neil Gaiman. Hmm. And more importantly, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Okay, For when she guest edited Vogue, uh, I guess she asked Matt Haig for help. And Matt Haig didn't realize who it was because she thought he thought it was just Vogue, like wanting a random column or he didn't answer it. And then Meghan Markle had to text him. It's like, hey, this is Meghan Markle. (laughs) And he also tweeted out that Meghan Markle has amazing handwriting because Meghan Markle wrote him a a letter. Oh my gosh,
0: Dylan's showing it to me right now. That is the most beautiful handwriting I've ever
2: seen. (laughs) The flourishes. So basically, he is a huge mental health advocate now. Haig is married to Andrea Sample. Uh, they have two children and one dog, and he resides in Brighton, Sussex, and he homeschools his children. Also, it is very important to note that because literally, if you type in Matt Haig, literally all the comments are, are questions that pop up. Or is Matt Haig still married to Andrea? They were, that was his girlfriend in Ibiza. Okay. And also, apparently, his daughter is naturally open and confident, and his son is more introverted, but, and this is a quote from The Guardian, Lucas isn't sporty, but he has already written seven books all over 10,000 words.
0: Wow.
1: Maggie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and on his current to read list, he has The Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, a nonfiction book about fungi. Sure okay and the current thing he's working on is a sequel to hansel and gretel set in the modern age about childhood trauma they've been cursed and transformed into a tree or something for 500 years and come out in the 1980s Hansel has addiction issues and is in vegas and gretel is introverted and traumatized
0: you know i just read that book to maggie it's messed up (laughs) i mean the witch is one thing but the fact that the parents were like let's leave our kids in the woods
2: they found their way back
0: that was not the plan anyway
1: Anyway, we all leave kids in the (laughs) woods. It sounds like he has a lot of books that you can read, but that's Matt Haig.
0: Well, thank you for the great facts, Dylan. And the Midnight Library, for me, three stars for other five stars. Maybe in another life, it would be eight stars. Who knows?
1: Mm. Mm. Yes, when you created the eight star grading system.
0: In this timeline, I did. Uh, Dylan, I heard that you have a game for us this week.
1: Ooh, I do. I do. Okay. Oh, phew. For a second, I thought you were going to say you didn't.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thankfully, in this timeline, I did make a game. (laughs) This game is called Early to Dead, Early to Rise. As you know, uh, in the Midnight Library, they get to see what would happen in their lives if something else happened. If they made a different choice. If they made a different choice. So I decided to give that opportunity to a bunch of authors who died uh, young. A lot of them under 50, one under 60. So I will tell you what would have happened had they not died prematurely. And you are going to guess which author I am talking about.
1: Excellent. And do we buzz in or is it turn-based? You buzz
2: in. So for buzzing, you'll do howl because that is in Midnight Library. Also in Virginia Woolf because that's her name. Uh-huh. Um, and this is really important. You cannot howl before I finish. Okay. If you do, I'll deduct points or something. <laughs> All right.
0: I'm ready. Howl.
2: I'm. I've never
1: been more ready.
2: Okay. After dying from a lung embolism at the age of forty-six, this author lived to the modern day, where he was able to see the future he had predicted in his books. Unfortunately, become true. But fortunately, he was able to trademark his names, which made him a lot of money every time someone used it to describe how bad it was. Howl. Howl. Andrew. George Orwell. Nay, Eric Blair. That is correct. Curry. I was gonna say
0: just George Orwell.
2: This author would follow her love and keep on teaching English to children, but then retire to join her sisters, who also did not die in their 30s, to start their own real estate company since they're so good at crafting striking descriptions of manners. How? How? Billy.
1: Charlotte Bronte? I'm going to say Emily Bronte as my backup. <laughs> Is it? yeah, it's Emily Bronte. Oh, okay. Emily, woo! You knew it was a Bronte. This adventure
2: writer doesn't die in a German sanitarium at the age of 28, but instead joins a group of Civil War reenactors along with his friend H.G. Well, Joseph Conrad and their intern, Ernest Hemingway. How? Bailey.
0: Arthur Conan Doyle?
1: No. No. Adventure writer? Died in a German sanitarium. Civil War is the bigger thing to focus on here. And he was 28 and he died in a German sanitarium.
2: Also, Ernest Hemingway was a huge fan of his. Apparently he said like, he was the best writer.
0: Howl again?
1: Yes. I didn't realize Bailey could do it again, but
2: okay.
0: Jack London?
2: Nope. It was Stephen Crane, who wrote The Red Badge of Courage.
0: I would not say that The Red Badge of Courage is an adventure novel.
1: I wouldn't say
2: that either, but he wrote a lot of adventure
1: novels. Gotcha.
2: Okay. I get half.
1: You do not get any points. You said Arthur <laughs> you get, Conan Doyle, get who lived no to a very long old, old age.
2: This author, instead of being shot down during World War II, would instead join NASA and become a founding researcher on the team that looked for intergalactic
1: monarchies.
0: How Bailey. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry.
1: That is correct.
0: That's right.
1: That's nice, Bailey. Good one. I had it ready, but you howled first. I didn't realize how much of a... I knew he was a pilot. I didn't realize oh, how yeah. much of a pilot he was. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's a
2: big old pilot. Yeah. <laughs> um, this author, instead of dying of unexplained causes at the age of 40, instead survived and became the number one flooring contractor in all of Baltimore. And yes, he does basements.
1: How Andrew. I knew it from when saying unexplained causes. If we didn't need the rest of it, it's Edgar Allan Poe. But you appreciate the rest of it, right? Yep. Yeah, married Miss Virginia Clem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. For this author, instead of dying from meningitis at the age of 46, this author would somehow live to see the Policing and Crime Act in 2017 pardon several LGBTQ Britons. Despite being over 150 years old, he looked amazing. How old? Andrew.
1: Oscar Wilde. Ba-boom.
2: Bailey, you gotta read more about people who are dead.
0: Either this wallpaper goes or I do.
2: I was going to make a wallpaper joke, and it's like, that's too inside baseball. I also had the joke that he has a private Instagram account that he won't let anyone see.
0: His Instagram account ages, but he does not.
2: (laughs) 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 Andrew, with that, you, uh... (laughs) Billy can't catch up.
1: Andrew wins. Yay! Five to two. Congratulations. Thank you. I just don't get to play that often, so I got really excited. Yay.
0: All right. Well, now's the point in the podcast where Dylan chooses our next books at random from our shelves. In this timeline, it's time for The, the, the choosing. The Choosening.
2: True. Because in this timeline, anything could happen. What would have happened if the Nazis did win the war? You wouldn't know, because you're going to be reading number four, Band of Brothers by Stephen Ambrose oh
1: i was gonna say i do not have the man from high castle on my <laughs> list
2: no that's what we're about we're about americans winning the war <laughs> and being perfectly clean morally afterwards oh gosh
1: cool i am excited it's been a while since i've had well actually no I, confederates in the attic was relatively recent but it's been a while since i've had a non-fiction book i haven't done a lot i'm excited i'm a little scared because i know dylan loves this more than some of his family members um and we'll see I don't know if he'll be doing the facts, but this book has a very complicated history. But the
2: show is amazing.
0: Dylan is very excited to rewatch Band of Brothers as well as the Pacific and maybe the new Air Force show.
2: And Bailey's going to be watching it every step of the way.
0: <sighs> All right. What,
2: <laughs> what's my book? Well, Bailey will not be able to wait for those magic words for me to say it. Then we came to the end. Number 118 by Joshua Ferris.
0: Okay, cool. Then we came to the end. I got this at a library book sale. I I think it, I don't know when it came out, but it was popular. And I believe it has to, it's like a comedy set at a workplace. I think so. But well written. So I don't know. We'll find out. When we come to the end. Ha ha ha. Dun, dun, dun. ha, ha. So, on our next episode, Toby is reading House of Spirits by Isabel Allende, and I will be reading Then We Came to the End by Joshua Ferris. Thanks for listening to the Two Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the Two Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the Two Read List podcast.
1: And if you like what you heard there are a couple ways that you can help us reach new people one of which is on your podcatcher of choice um, this is particularly true for Apple iTunes uh, leave a review and a rating it, it uh, helps us reach new people it puts us on lists it bumps us up certain charts it seems silly but it is helpful and also we like reading the reviews um, and then also the best way for us to find new listeners is through word of mouth so if you have a friend a book lover if you have multiple lives that you can have access to through a bookshelf that you have in front of you get a bunch of different friends uh, and tell them to to give us a listen
0: thanks to andrew and dylan for co-hosting the podcast with me to dylan for sound recording to toby for following his dreams and to miss jillian beth durkey for composing our intro song see you in two weeks happy reading books books books, 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 books. books.